Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today. How about yourself, Sarah? Uh, It's overcast and raining, so kind of feeling dozy. That's fair. Yeah. You know, you just want to take a lot of naps. Yeah, I hear you. I've had like a bad cough the last few days. Um, so far, not COVID. Um, you don't have any of the other symptoms. No. And it's also been very, very dry here with a lot of pollen. So I'm also leaning towards it being a result of that. Yeah, I think so too. But the end result is that I've been taking like cold medication and it's got me feeling all loosey goosey. <laughs> Oh, no. (laughs) Is that going to impact the movie we watched today? I don't know. We'll find out. (laughs) Stay tuned. Indeed. Um, What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching Monster on the Campus from 1958, directed by Jack Arnold. So I have to wonder, we've talked in the past about um, the Canadian show Big Wolf on campus. Yeah. I wonder if part of that comes from this movie or they just both happen to be riffing on the idea of like big dog on campus. Like, oh, there's like the big dog. Yeah, I think they're both riffing off that phrase, like big man on campus. Yeah. Um, But also like big wolf on campus is definitely like taking more from like I was a teenage werewolf and and Teen Wolf, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, well, Teen Wolf came after, didn't the it? movie Teen Wolf with Michael J. Fox okay, from okay, the okay. from cool, the eighties? Cool. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We have talked about that specifically before. Yes. Um, <laughs> that being said, I would think that this movie is coming out of like the AIP Teen Monster thing. Uh, we find ourselves with this film back at Universal International dipping their toes once again into horror production, um, seemingly inspired by the success of these AIP teen monster movies, and yet also seemingly maybe not getting it. (laughs) Sure. Because um, instead of a teen turning into a monster, it's a college professor who turns into the monster. Okay. We've, we've been talking about teens a lot, but I do just want to point out that if folks want to go back and listen to the first real teen horror movie, I would recommend checking out our episode on I Was a Teenage Werewolf from 1957. It is episode 213. And then I think what I would kind of consider the epitome of the teen horror movie up to this point is The Blob, hmm. which came out this year, 1958, and we covered that in episode 250. Well, what we see here, I think, is Universal half-assing it. Like, we're setting this movie in a milieu that has a lot of teens in it, and we have younger actors playing teen characters, um, who I'll talk about in a moment. But our lead characters are still, like, very firmly adults with this college professor and his fiance and stuff like that. And so it's, like, not really committing to the Mm. teen thing. Uh, This film was produced by Joseph Gershenson, who actually had been the head of Universal's music department since 1940 and would continue in that role until 1969. He's typically credited on Universal movies as music supervisor, um, which would mean that, like, if you're watching a Universal movie where the music is all made up of library tracks, like he's the one deciding what library tracks where and when. Ah, so he has a real hard-on for the Wolfman soundtrack. (laughs) Um, He started dipping his hand in as an associate producer on films starting in the 1940s, and here we have him in a full producer role. The film's screenplay is by David Duncan, who was born in 1913 and worked in public services and government administration for 10 years before deciding at age 33 to give writing science fiction a shot. Uh, several... You know, I respect that. Yeah. You know, he's he's been working hard to get bread on the table, bringing home the bacon, and he's like, no, you know what? I want to do something for me. Yeah. 
Several of his sci-fi short stories would be published in like pulp magazines in the 1950s. And he wrote a large number of uh, sci-fi movie screenplays. Uh, He wrote the English language script for Rodan, as well as the stories for the giant monster movies, The Monster That Challenged the World and The Black Scorpion, which were both in 1957. He also wrote the story for The Thing That Couldn't Die in 1958. Cool. So the head in the chest that's on the branch that they dig out. Yeah, 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 that one. After doing Monster on the Campus, his name would actually become attached to some more prestigious sci-fi projects in the 1960s, uh, most notably 1960s The Time Machine, uh, which is his favorite script that he's worked on, as well as 1966's Fantastic Voyage. Yeah, those are two big ones. Um, I also feel obligated to mention that, like, in the 1960s, he wrote a lot for, like, television, kind of just, like, take what work you can get kind of stuff. And he did write five episodes of My Three Sons. My Three Sons! I thought you were going to say that he wrote for Star Trek. No, I just feel obligated now to point out My Three Sons content whenever it pops up because you've become obsessed with this 60s sitcom that you've never seen a second of. Soon. Mm. Soon I shall. Uh, Yes. My three sons. Yeah. I got three sons. Okay. (laughs) We're going to have to, (laughs) listeners, if you want a petition for a My Three Sons recap podcast spinoff of Scream Scene, (laughs) get in the comments. So uh, to helm this project, we have the return of Jack Arnold, who had been Universal's sort of go-to sci-fi guy through the 1950s. Um, He had directed It Came From Outer Space, This Island Earth, Tarantula, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, and The Incredible Shrinking Man. Lately, he's been mostly doing like crime dramas of various kinds, like from film noir to more like melodrama to juvenile delinquency. Uh, Films like The Tattered Dress, Man in the Shadow, The Lady Takes a Flyer, and High School Confidential. (laughs) One of those is not like the others. Uh, How did he feel about coming back to horror? Because he kind of like dug himself out of there. Yeah, well, earlier in 1958, he had returned to sci-fi when his former Universal producer, William Olland, decided to like strike it independent and made a film called The Space Children, which ended up getting distributed by Paramount Pictures. So Arnold had directed that. And now we find him like firmly back in the horror sci-fi milieu with Monster on the Campus. This would actually end up being kind of the last genre film that Arnold would make. Um, After this, he mostly transitioned into directing television, and he passed away in 1992 at age 75 of arteriosclerosis. Okay. The film's cinematography is by Russell Meddy, who won the Academy Award for his work on Spartacus in 1960, and is also well known for his collaborations with Douglas Sirk. Famous films of Russell Meddy's include Bringing Up Baby from 1938, The Stranger from 1946, Magnificent Obsession from 1954, Cult of the Cobra from 1955, All That Heaven Allows from 1955, Written on the Wind from 1956, Man of a Thousand Faces from 1957, Touch of Evil from 1958, The Thing That Couldn't Die from 1958, and then after this film came out, um, he did Imitation of Life, in 1959, Spartacus in 1960, The Misfits in 1961, The Omega Man in 1971, Ben in 1972, and he had a long career that lasted until he passed away in 1978. So he's a worker. Yes. But a very good and talented cinematographer. Yes, absolutely. Those Douglas Sirk movies are beautiful. Yeah. The film was edited by Ted J. Kent, who was basically like a staff editor at Universal. Um, He worked on films like The Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein, Showboat, The Road Back, Son of Frankenstein, The Wolfman, Ghost of Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Destry, and Man of a Thousand Faces. So like very much just like Universal contract people, right? Yeah. The film stars actor Arthur Franz in the lead role as the professor who turns into a monster. He was born in 1920 and was basically like a regularly working supporting actor through the late 40s into the early 80s. He appeared in Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man, Invaders from Mars, um, as well as A-pictures like Sands of Iwo Jima and The Kane Mutiny. His female co-star playing his 
fiance is Joanna Moore, who was born in 1934, so 14 years younger than him, um, originally under the name Dorothy Joanne Cook. Uh, but her parents and sister died in a car accident when she was seven years old, and she was adopted by another family in the town. Wow. Uh, and that was the point at which she started going by Joanna. And then at age 17, she got married to Willis Moore, uh, but they were soon divorced. After her divorce, she attended college and then won a beauty contest, uh, the prize for which got her sent out to Hollywood, where she was signed by Universal at age 22. Uh, she would end up being married four times in her life, divorcing all four husbands. The longest of her marriages was for four years to actor Ryan O'Neill, who you would best know for playing Barry Lyndon in the film Barry Lyndon. Okay. Um, and with whom she had two children, actress Tatum O'Neill and actor Griffin O'Neill. All of the members of this family uh, struggled with problems relating to addiction all their lives, um, alcohol, drugs, and Due to these substance abuse problems, uh, Moore's career really took a dive in the 1970s, um, and she ended up being mostly supported by her daughter, and she passed away in 1997 of lung cancer. That's too bad. Probably the most famous member of this cast now, although he was not famous yet when he appeared in this movie, is undoubtedly future teen sex symbol Troy Donahue who plays young student Jimmy Flanders in this movie. <laughs> Troy Donahue. Is this like the long lost brother of Ned Flanders? No. <laughs> um, Troy Donahue is almost like one of the inspirations for Troy McClure in a way. Okay. Uh, in the sense of like a big, big name who just like, whose career didn't last kind of thing. Yeah. Troy Donahue was born Merle Johnson Jr. in 1936. So as he's playing a student and he's two years younger than the actress playing the professor's fiance, just have to point that out. Um, he was the son of a retired actress and a production manager, and he wanted to act like his entire life. He got a degree in journalism from Columbia University, then went out to Hollywood where he was signed by Rock Hudson's agent, um, who changed his name to Troy Donahue. He signed with Universal Studios in 1956 and was mostly put in like small roles in B movies like this one. Yeah. Um, and then uh, his big break was when Warner Brothers took over his contract and cast him in A Summer Place opposite Sandra D in 1959. After that film, he sort of became like a, uh, that film was a big hit and he became a big star and they heavily promoted him as like a sex symbol for teen girls and basically just like pumped out a ton of movies with him in them that like aren't really very good and were just kind of designed to like ride the Troy Donahue train as long as it was going to last. And so what ended up happening to him was his like image that they created for him was very like squeaky clean teen. Sure. He got typecast as that. And that image eventually like stopped being in style. He tried to kind of change his image a bit, like growing his sideburns out and trying to get like a more hippie kind of like identity going. But like casting directors would be like, no, you're Troy Donahue. We want squeaky clean Troy Donahue, even though audiences didn't want squeaky clean Troy Donahue. He tried to break into other roles, uh, including playing a psychopathic killer in 1965's My Blood Runs Cold. Um, but that ended up just kind of killing his career. Oh. Um, like people just didn't like seeing him in those roles. His career fell into a huge, sharp decline. He was living way beyond his means. He fell into drug and alcohol addiction, ended up having to like leave Hollywood because he couldn't afford his lifestyle anymore, became homeless in New York for a long stretch of time um, and finally like emerged into sobriety in the 1980s, but like never really like gained back, you know, the, the height of his fame or popularity. Okay. And he passed away in 2001. Uh, also appearing in this film is Whit Bissell, who appeared in Teenage Werewolf and Teenage Frankenstein. Uh, he shows up here in a minor supporting role. And then it's also worth mentioning that, um, once the professor has turned into the monster, it's no longer Arthur Franz playing the role. Instead, it is prolific stuntman Eddie Parker, 
uh, who appears in all of the monster scenes. And if that name sounds familiar, he's in like 700 movies or something like that as a stuntman. Wow. Uh, he's been a monster in a lot of movies. He's been various movies all over the place. Um, so it would take forever to try and list what movies he's been in, but very prolific stuntman. Have we seen him before on definitely. the show? Yeah, we've definitely seen him in things on the show before. Okay. So the film shot for 12 days in April and May of 1958 at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Jack Arnold would later say that he felt this film was not up to the standards of his other movies. Did he say why? Like, if he had more time or more money, do you think he would feel differently? Yeah, I think so. I think for him it was the fact that this was, like, a low-budget production that wasn't really accorded a lot of, like, respect by the studio. Okay. Um, In fact, it was released on December 17th, 1958, as the bottom half of a double bill with Universal's release of Blood of the Vampire from the U.K., that's the one with like the fake vampire from uh, Jimmy Sangster yeah. wrote it, but it's not. Yeah. And there's horror. the there's the like insane asylum and they're yeah. experimenting on people. Yeah. So this is the ooh, maybe they did that because that's a, in color. Yes. So that picture's in color. This is in black and white. So that got the A slot. But still, like the movie you're importing got the A slot and the movie you actually produced got the B slot should show you kind of like where this movie was on the totem pole at Universal International. For sure. The film received mixed reviews when it came out, with critics noting um, the focus on the human side of the monster, but criticism being targeted at the film's cheapness and subpar monster makeup, uh, oh, no. with many people noting that like Bud Westmore's monster here is like mostly just like has the appearance of like a rubber Halloween mask. I mean, that's that's Bud Westmore, guys. Yeah. He's he's not good at his job. Yeah. This movie has gotten some like academic analyses from people like who've written their theses on it and stuff. Okay. Um, which have analyzed like the professor and his monstrous alter ego as either representations of individuality versus conformity. Or there was another one that represented the film as being um, about the anxieties around the desegregation of education and the presence of black students on white campuses. Was that happening at this time? Uh, Brown versus Board of Education was in 1954. Uh, so this is four years later, I I guess. Um, I think it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. But we'll see, I guess. Yeah. So Monster on the Campus is available on DVD from Universal in the classic sci-fi Ultimate Collection, uh, which also has um, Incredible Shrinking Man and Tarantula. And it's available on Blu-ray from Scream Factory, and you can stream it on Tubi. All right, folks. Well, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Monster on the Campus from 1958, directed by Jack Arnold. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Monster on the Campus from 1958, directed by Jack Arnold. Sarah, what'd you think? It's a stinker. Yeah, this is a big disappointment on... The campus. (laughs) On pretty much every level. Yeah. You know, I will say some interesting possibilities Mm. uh, that go nowhere. Right. Uh, that I think are just like loose threads from past script drafts. Maybe. And yeah, there's... A, <laughs> I mean, it is a horror movie. It is definitely a horror movie. Yeah, but there's definitely a lot of like wasted potential here. Yeah. For sure. Uh, let's talk about what the story is and try not to just say... It's Jekyll and Hyde. (laughs) You can't even say it's Jekyll and Hyde, but with science, because... Jekyll and Hyde is science. Is science. Science. (laughs) 
So this film follows Dr. Donald Blake, who uh, is in this... the mighty Thor. In this universe is not the mighty Thor. That was a medical doctor, Ben. Uh, this is a professor of basically anthropology. Um, I would say like paleoanthropology if you want to get real specific. Uh, and he the movie works, doesn't. Yeah. Um, I don't think they even say what he's a professor of. No. He works at Dunsford University. Is it Dunsford or Dunsfield? You know, Wikipedia said Ford. Okay. But they also... Uh, fuck up on their plot synopsis on wikipedia uh they say someone dies when they do not die mm. um so i don't know we'll, we'll go with dunsford okay when they found the town was it near a field or a fjord uh who knows <laughs> so when we are introduced to donald blake he is making a cast of his fiance madeline's face for her to represent woman of the present now he has all of these um like plaster face masks of um the different like there's like neanderthal and then like other thal and other other thal. It's, it's, a, it's he has like <laughs> um basically a bunch of like proto human faces up on his wall uh indicating his interest in like early anthropoid life there we go, um, which is mainly why I think he's like a professor of anthropology. Yeah. And uh, he has a man of the present, and now he is getting Madeline's face for a woman of the present. And I emphasize that this is how we are introduced to Dr. Blake, because he his first lines in the movie are like, ah, this is how I like my women, silent and uh, unable to stop me. Yeah, like unable to move. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's... That's the movie! <laughs> Welcome, welcome to Monster on the Campus. Uh, really putting faith in how this campus would handle Title IX Ooh. in the future. <laughs> After they wrap up making this cast of her face, um, Dr. Blake gets a delivery. Uh, now, he has been expecting um, basically this like frozen specimen of a coelacanth, uh, which is a real thing. Um Basically, you know, you could consider it a living fossil of like a very old fish uh, that has not gone through any sort of evolution over the past centuries and thousands of centuries. Uh, it, it, it has remained the same. Um, these things are real. Uh, the one that they have is not. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is being delivered by a student named Jimmy, who's done a poor job of refrigeration because it was stored in like a block of ice and it is melting everywhere. And unfortunately, Jimmy has brought his dog Samson along. Samson licks up some of the melting ice blood water uh, and goes feral. Um, he goes and he ends up attacking Madeline. Um, so they catch him. They put him in a cage to basically observe him to see, like, is this rabies? Because he has the increased aggression, but he's not foaming at the mouth. Um, somehow he's grown these large incisors. Uh, so th they're keeping him under observation. But um, Dr. Blake does grab a saliva sample for the local other professor or medical doctor on campus, Dr. Oliver. Dr. Oliver sends his nurse, Molly Riordan, to come pick up the saliva sample later that night. And as Molly is there, she comes on to Blake and he, like, doesn't completely rebuff her, but clearly, like, still does. Yeah, there's some banter. Yeah, and he's like, okay, well, help me put this coelacanth away into the refrigerator. And he picks it up, like, by the tail and puts his hand in its mouth. Like, dude has never gone fishing because you, you don't do that. But anyways, he does this and cuts his hand on the teeth. And then he's like, oh, help me move this, like, big box of bloody water to the disposal unit. And his open wounded hand slips into the bloody water great yeah this guy has like no concept of like 
how to properly keep specimens, how to have proper like biohazard lab safety. No. No. That's because he's in the soft sciences, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Now Molly is there and she's a nurse and she's like, oh, well, I have a first aid kit in my car. Let's fix up your hand. And by the time that they make it to the car, Blake has gotten very dizzy and he's like, "I, I just need to go home. So she drives him home. Um, He's passed out by the time that they arrive there. So she heads into the house and calls up Dr. Oliver and, you know, can't get through. The line's busy, whatever. And suddenly she is attacked by an unknown assailant. Now, Blake had made plans to pick up Madeline because they were supposed to go, like, chaperone a dance or something. Uh, So Madeline goes to his house to look for him. And this is when she sees Molly's car out front. Ooh, uh, the door unlocked. Ooh, but then the house is trashed and she finds Blake passed out on the lawn and Molly dead and hanging in a tree by her hair. She calls the police and the police are very clearly suspecting Blake. Um, and that is until they find fingerprints in the house that indicate that a third person was there and is likely the person who trashed the house. But also most confusingly, these fingerprints are huge. Like they could not be of a human person's hand. This movie is like, what if Donald Blake was Hulk instead of Thor? I mean, maybe. Mm. Um, Now Blake has amnesia, uh, so he can't really tell what happened. But don't worry, Lieutenant Stevens is on the case, and the movie makes it clear that he is a real cop by having the Dragnet theme song practically play. Now, he thinks that it's someone trying to frame Blake, uh, so he sets Sergeant Daniels as Blake's bodyguard. Now, Sergeant Daniels gets a little bored while waiting in like the laboratory the next day as... Um, Blake is doing science stuff. Blake, on the other hand, is very excited because he's taken some bacteria from the coelacanth and it's like crystallized. And he's like, bacteria isn't supposed to do that. Um, At the same time, a dragonfly somehow makes it into the lab and sees what's on the slab and goes like munching on the coelacanth. Yeah, because he's just had this dead fish just hanging out sitting out on a slab like it must smell horribly yeah and they're like oh shoot dragonfly whatever they don't think anything of it and blake is like but i need to take this crystallized bacteria over to dr oliver because this shouldn't be a thing so he heads over there uh he passes jimmy and his girlfriend who i didn't catch her name sylvia sylvia passes jimmy and his girlfriend sylvia uh because jimmy's like hey can i have my dog back and he gets told to just wait at the science building i'll be right back so while blake heads over to dr oliver's to show him this bacteria um dr oliver sees that like no this is just regular bacteria it's not crystallized at all and blake's like well i couldn't have imagined it could i cut to the teens hanging out and they hear like what sounds like a model plane flying around. They see a shadow of what they think is like a model plane or something. Finally, Blake comes back. This is when Sergeant Daniels goes like, I'll be right back. I need to make a phone call. Um, So it's just Blake and the teens heading inside. And that's when they hear like a knock at the window. They open it up and it's the dragonfly, but it's like 20 times its size. It's like two or three meters long. And... Blake is like, well, this is like a prehistoric version of a dragonfly. They manage to catch it and stab it, impale it completely with um, a letter opener, basically. Yeah, I think so. And Blake is like, okay, kids, don't mention this to anyone because I want to share the discovery and have all the glory myself, basically. Now, here's the thing. He impales the dragonfly on the fish. (laughs) And to get it off, he, you know, has to take the knife out of the fish and the dragonfly is on there and you know he's holding it up as he's like moving things around to try to make space for where to put this dragonfly and it drips blood everywhere including in his fucking pipe (laughs) just big dollops right inside (laughs) which then he goes to smoke 
He has a moment of being like, huh, that's a weird taste, and then just goes for it. Yeah, well, I mean, he's on a college campus. Tobacco addiction, man. It's a hell of a thing. <laughs> this is some of that uh, funny tobacco that the kids are all about these mm. days. Um, yeah, he Those continues. Beatniks. <laughs> he continues to smoke it, and it transforms. Um, we see he. So his, we see from his point of view that his uh, vision goes blurry. We do see that the dragonfly reverts back to its like normal size. Um, and this is when we get the crossfade transformation on Blake's face that he turns into a anthropoid ape man. Mm-hmm. A Neanderthal man, if you will. I think scientifically they specifically point out that it's not a Neanderthal, mm. but it is a Paleolithic man. Yes. So he ends up trashing his lab and Daniels is walking back from his phone call, hears the commotion, runs inside, and sees a weird man running away. So he chases him, loses him, makes it to a call box, is calling in, and just as he gets Stevens on the line, he is attacked and killed by this ape assailant. So the police have made it in. Um, they are investigating what has happened to Daniels, and they see that there are these like large footprints that clearly like couldn't be made by like a human foot, but they suspect maybe someone made them using like a prop foot or something. Now keep in mind, Blake wakes up, uh, having passed out on the lawn in wrecked clothes, having lost both his shoes and with amnesia. Cue the sad piano man music from the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> so Blake has seen all of this evidence of like the big hands, the big feet. And he's like, no, this is definitely from a like prehistoric ape like man. There must be something kind of like that dragonfly that was about um, only like a man version. And so he starts like digging into research about, you know, where this coelacanth was found, calls all the way to Madagascar from somewhere USA and confirms that Basically, when the team captured this fish off the coast of Madagascar, they used a new and improved method of preservation by bombarding it with gamma rays. <laughs> See? I told you, he's the Hulk. Banner, by gamma rays, turned into the Hulk. It's this gamma radiation that caused some kind of issue with the coelacanth blood plasma junk. One thing I haven't mentioned is that, yes, his fiance is Madeline. Her father is the president of the university. Mm -hmm. And this guy, you know, he was super excited about the coelacanth because like, oh, we're going to get some such good press and like get like more alumni donations. Um, but otherwise has been like... Why, why is this a big deal? Like, who cares? And also has been kind of uh, fully believing that Blake is going a little crazy um, from the stress of all of this. He doesn't think like, oh, he's going mad scientist, but just that like... There's you, been murders. There's been murders around you. You have a lot of stress. So along with Dr. Oliver, they go to Blake to urge him to take a leave of absence. Um, and this is while Blake is like, no, but really, I, I think, you know, someone's transforming on purpose to do these murders. And as he's, you know, explaining this theory and getting the plasma ready to inject himself, uh, he starts realizing that the theory fits himself. Yeah. And then goes, actually, future father-in-law and Dr. Oliver, uh, don't worry about it. I'll just take that leave of absence. It's fine. No need to call the police in here. So he takes that leave of absence and goes up to his father-in-law's cabin in the middle of the woods and basically plans to either prove or disprove this theory by injecting himself because he's realized that, like, if his theory is true, then he is the murderer. And if his theory is not true, then no harm, no foul. No one has to know. 
he has this series of string and cameras to go off when he like nudges into them. Yeah, he he knows that like he's going to turn into this thing and like start smashing up the place. So he's basically rigged it to to take his picture from all these different angles. Now, just before he can inject himself, the local uh, forest ranger comes by and he's like, yeah, I saw lights on and wanted to say hi. Hope you're doing fine. Okay, bye. I This killed me because this exact thing happens in The Lost Skeleton of Cadavra. Yeah. And so like anytime <laughs> something like directly connects to that parody movie, it always tickles me. Now, remember how I said that everyone on campus is thinking that Blake is crazy? Well, Jimmy and Sylvia are like, but we saw the dragonfly too. So they go to Madeline to be like, hey, we don't think he's crazy. And she's like, oh, well, I'm really glad that you told me. Let me ring up my father. Hi, dad. I'm going up to the cabin. Now I am going up to the cabin. (laughs) Great acting. And so she's driving up. And we cut back to Blake injecting himself. And yes, he turns into the monster. Um, He manages to capture a couple of photos as he trashes the cabin. And then he jumps out the window. Also picking up an axe along the way, (laughs) which is wild. So he's like wandering the roads as Madeline is driving up. And she goes like, holy shit, fuck. And then crashes. Her car doesn't explode. Her car doesn't explode because it's a rental. Uh, for the production. Now, the local ranger did see someone speeding through the mountains and then hears a crash. And so he's going to go look what's going on. Monster Blake is like investigating the lady and he's like, oh, blonde woman, good. <laughs> and goes to like kidnap her just as the sheriff is coming up going like, hey, is she hurt badly? Because from behind, he just looks like a hairy beatnik. When monster blake turns uh the local ranger is like oh shit and like runs back to his house calls up the dunsford police to be like hey get the fuck up here and then grabs his gun and goes back out now madeline to her credit she you know she's been knocked out from the car accident uh she gets taken up a hill and then like laid down by a log and the minute that she's awake she screams and runs and just books it monster blake does you know grab her and she faints again but any time that she's awake she is trying to run she doesn't just stand there and scream so you know credit where credit's due but monster blake still has the axe so when the local ranger comes by to be like hey what are you doing he gets an axe to the face (laughs) he sure does luckily the police including Lieutenant Stevens and um, university president father-in-law are coming on up the mountain and uh, they make it to the cabin just as Madeline has like run away from the creature. She is like freaking out and uh, non-monster Blake comes in and she's like, Oh Blake, like, thank God you're okay. Or did you get hurt from the monster? I guess you must've killed it because the monster's not around anymore. Um, just a little, uh, little dim-witted here. Yeah, just some, just some real, real Lois Lane energy here. <laughs> um, and Blake's like, no, I didn't kill the monster. The monster's nearby. And, like, he knows what he's done. Mm. <laughs> like a bad dog, he knows <laughs> what he's done. So the police managed to get in there, and Blake is like, no cops and father-in-law i will take you to the monster because we have to pad out this runtime still uh so madeline you stay here where it's safe and i will take everyone to go see the monster now for reasons i won't get into the cops are lagging a little bit behind so that blake can draw out the monster but the father-in-law comes with blake um and blake has another syringe and he's like you know it's up to man to like decide how he wants to continue whether he'll like fully cause himself to go extinct or you know not and then he injects himself and he's suddenly the creature and blake and father-in-law starts running away saying don't shoot to the cops as the cops fully unload on this ape monster and of course in death he reverts back to blake yep that's the end 
I will say a significant chunk of this movie does happen on a campus. So Mm -hmm. I feel like the fact that we end not on campus doesn't negate the title monster on the campus. Sure. He basically commits suicide by cop at the end. Yep. Um, So for the most part, I found this movie to be super boring. Yeah. Universal really missed the mark, both in terms of teens and also for a compelling or interesting movie. It's it's basically just another Jekyll and Hyde riff. It even has some of the same like character archetypes with the fiance and then like the fiance's rich dad who's like kind of the scientist's boss or he needs to like impress for some reason. Um, and there's like the skeptic scientist friend who like doesn't believe what's going on, this kind of thing. You know, it's doing this thing about like primitive man and like the urges within and like man's savagery and stuff and the movie like wants to have something to say about evolution and man and like the dangers of man's savage nature and how we have to make a choice about reason and truth in order to survive like star trek style yeah there are a few speeches from blake to that effect But But like like, as much as that they want to say something about it, that's all they have to say. Right. And the tone of the movie feels so mean spirited and cynical. Like even though the movie's presenting this question of like, what will man choose? It's as if the movie's already convinced that a reversion to savagery is inevitable. Mm -hmm. Like the way that Blake talks about it is very much with this tone of like, ah, kids today reverting man to his savage nature. And not only did the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde use primitive man as a visual basis for Hyde as part of a metaphor about like man's repressed inner self, but Neanderthal man straight up did this premise in 1953. Yeah. And I'm really sad to say that that super low budget indie movie from five years earlier did about as well on the makeup as this studio picture. It's not good. It, it's almost dire. Yeah, it's it's a mask. It's a Halloween ape like rubber mask, basically. And it's not mapped to the actor's mouth very no. well. So it's just flopping kind of all over the place. The transformation is a crossfade and mm-hmm. we see it once in the sense of like, oh, he's turning. And then the second time is when he's like dying. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> they're also not super well done. No, it's it's pretty bad um, both times. We do get some neat close-ups on the hands. And the hands look kind of neat. Yeah, there's a neat effect being done to make the fingers look longer, like to make the hands look bigger. But the mask is just, it's really, really dire. Yeah. Um, it, it really sucks. The script is rough Mm -hmm. with loose threads, as I kind of already intimated. I'm just going to call out one Mm. because I think that they could have done something really interesting with it. And this is part of its like lost potential. Mm. So the way that Blake behaves in the beginning and then the way he kind of banters with Molly makes it seem like okay he's a bit of a ladies man Mm. no he's a little bit of a player Mm. um if he was wearing a polo he'd probably have the collar popped (laughs) uh after the police are done searching his trashed house they do find like a signed portrait of madeline saying like to blake my my loving fiance Mm -hmm. torn in half Mm -hmm. in a very deliberate way and i think that's very interesting later madeline asks don Hey, was there anything between you and Molly? I wasn't sure how to ask this because she literally just died yesterday. But Mm -hmm. was there anything there? And he's like, no, she was attractive, but no. Yeah, it just seemed like there was going to be something there. And then in the climax, literally, it's said by Blake when he's not a monster to Madeline that like, you know, I think that that monster does love you in some sort of way because he didn't just outright kill you. Mm. He basically says that. Yeah. So this movie basically chickens out on a bunch of stuff. One of those things is having any kind of like psychological connection between Blake and the monster. Like 
Again, the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde makes Hyde an expression of Jekyll's repressed emotions, specifically his like repressed sexuality, but also his like resentments of the upper class and all these other kinds of things. And then like Neanderthal Man is not a good movie and it's very unpleasant. However, it is a horror movie. And so you sometimes have to grapple with like, is it appropriate for horror movies to have, you know, unpleasantness in them? And the thing is, is like Neanderthal Man has a rape in it. Like when the professor in that movie turns himself into an ape man, he like very explicitly like rapes a girl. And if we want to be talking about a story that's about man's inner savagery, and you're going to have these scenes of like showing that Blake's kind of, you know, got a bit of a, a Neanderthal attitude towards women and then like Molly's, you know, uh, flirting with him and then like takes him home and then like the police find him passed out and Molly dead. But we later find out very explicitly that although the cops find Molly like dead hanging from her hair in a tree, um, she had nothing more than a few superficial scrapes and cuts. And what actually killed her was heart failure. She just died of fright from seeing the monster cutting off like any kind of idea of something more sordid going on. And yeah, then the movie just doesn't do anything with those ideas. And so, like, Neanderthal Man is a worse movie in terms of the filmmaking, because this mm-hmm. movie, you know, has that studio picture, you know, bare minimum competence thing happening. Yeah, like, the shots are well put together. Um, there's some interesting editing going on. Even some of the shot compositions, like, when they're searching the house, uh, the way that we're looking at the police, like, it's very interesting. There's, like, yeah, as you said, that level of competence that you would expect from a studio picture. And yet, like, Neanderthal Man goes for it in a way that this movie chickens out of. You know, I think the script wants to be smart, talking about Coelacanth and Meganura and uh, gamma rays and and shit. (laughs) Um, I just, you know, you throw in gamma rays, you throw in Dr. Donald Blake, you throw in this guy transforming, going on rampages and then waking up in tattered clothes the next day. And I just, this thing feels so Marvel comics. I tell (laughs) you, um, it's 1958. I think Hulk comics were already going. No, no. no. Um, uh, you don't get fantastic four till 1961, the incredible Hulk and Thor come out in 1962 okay yeah at this point though like marvel they might still be atlas but marvel comics is basically doing monster comics for the Mm -hmm. most part the other lost potential here for me is like the teen thing yeah like you set this on a campus you have these teen characters and they're just like total side characters it's completely incidental the setting of this movie really yeah this could be set anywhere else and it would be fine. These teens could be like children or teens. It, it wouldn't really make a difference besides the fact that Jimmy has to be able to drive. Yeah. Like the teens are completely superfluous to the yeah. movie. Um, so it really shows that like Universal's coming in here, not taking advantage of the trend, not coming up with anything new in any way. Like there's nothing it's super worthwhile here. This is very disappointing, mm-hmm. especially from Jack Arnold. Yeah, I will say, you know, at least they don't use any Wolfman music. Sure. I mean, it could have been <laughs> could have been very tempting to do so. I mean, you know, Arnold tends to have tragic endings to his movies, and I guess you could say that's what happens here with Blake deciding to like intentionally transform to get himself killed. But like, so here's the thing. The chick who plays Madeline Mm -hmm. does a really good job when she's put in terror. Yes. When she is fighting off Monster Blake, it's really convincing. When she has run away and closes the door behind her, you really feel it. Mm -hmm. And then for the movie to be like, just kidding, that's not the climax. We're just going to like fap about with the police. It would have been really interesting if like she goes back to the cabin and she's like crying and stuff and you know the monster's been shot by the ranger and falls over, right? And it's like what if the monster had bled out and died then 
and then the door had opened and it was the police being like, hey, we found Blake's body and he's like shot in the same place. And she realizes then that Blake was the monster and that's the end. I think it's the fact that she never puts two and two together. No. Even when she's like, oh, you're hurt in the same place. Oh, you have a photo of the monster. Why is he wearing your clothes? She literally says that. Like, or she says, and he's wearing your clothes. It reminds me of the end of Batman Returns when Batman takes his mask off and Max Shrek, played by Christopher Walken, looks at him and says, and Bruce Wayne, why are you dressed up like Batman? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it. I think... She should have fucking had a couple of brain cells. Yeah. And like, cause there would have been a horror in her realization. And right? then having the cops come in at that yeah, point. Yeah. Like no. there, there should have been something. Yeah. Lots and of lost potential here. Yeah. Lots of lost potential. Lots of fapping about. I think I'm trying to figure out a way to put in a line about like, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Cause that's what he does. But <laughs> I, I can't figure out how to put that line in here. Well, I do think you're blowing smoke up this movie's ass. If you're analyzing it along any other lines than the very explicit philosophical lines that the movie is drawing itself on, like to come at this movie and be like, Oh, this is about individuality versus conformity, or this is about white versus black. When like the movie is very explicitly about, savagery versus civilization and like stops and has speeches about it is very strange to me. That's some real academic faffing about as far as I'm concerned. Um, yes, a- academics do like to do that. And I can say that as an academic, mm. <laughs> um, sometimes we just need to write a thesis and we just happen to have seen a movie. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that's really the feel, huh? Yeah. Because this movie's not subtle about what it's about, even though it manages to have really nothing to say. Yeah. Well, let's move on to ranking. So to be honest, Sarah, I kind of just got like stuck at a spot on the list. Oh, interesting. Uh, Do you have a range? I do. And it is a large range. Interesting. So I didn't clock the connection with the Neanderthal man like you did. Uh, For the record, the Neanderthal man is ranked at number 189. That episode is also 162 if you do want to go listen back to it. I started looking down the list and was like, okay, but what feels good as a good starting point? And my eyes were drawn to Strangler of the Swamp at number 116. Hmm. That movie I felt is better than Monster on the Campus. I would agree. But I also had a hard time with it of like it kind of feeling like it just kind of wandered around a bit. It didn't live up to because it's a remake. It didn't live up to its original. So I was like, okay, well, this feels like a good ceiling. Right below that is the Trollenberg Terror slash the Crawling Eye. And just on like an effects level, like there's no way it's really going above that. So then I started looking down and down and down and my eyes stopped at number 133, The Haunted Strangler, which uh, is a little jumbled, Yeah, but it has Boris Karloff. It's also kind of a Jekyll and Hyde riff where Jekyll doesn't know that he's Hyde. Mm-hmm. But below that is Invaders from Mars. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I think this is better than Invaders from Mars, but I don't think it's better than The Haunted Strangler. So I made my floor 134. Interesting. So I got stuck at the Neanderthal Man. Okay. Which is down at 189, so totally below your range. Because I looked up what the monster looks like in Neanderthal Man, and it's basically exactly the same. Like, it's the same bad ape mask, practically. I don't think we ever got close-ups of it in the same way that we got close-ups of this one. No, no, yeah. And the Neanderthal Man sucks. It's a bad movie. It's poorly made. But like I said, it goes for it with the horror. Um, Not only does the Neanderthal man rape a character, but also there's this thing where it's revealed that he experimented on his like Mexican maid to like perfect his thing. And it's like super horrific and terrifying because I think she's mute in the movie or something. Yeah. So like the Neanderthal man kind of is more horrific than this movie, which, you know, I mean, Molly hangs from her hair and Ranger Brad or whatever his name is gets an axe to the face. But 
otherwise, like, this is very boring to me. So I understand where you're coming from, but the Neanderthal man is not a very good movie. No. Right? Like, it's not well constructed at all. The other movies that are down in this area are also ones that are like, this was barely made. Yeah, right above the Neanderthal man is Plan 9 from Outer Space. Um, yeah. My problem is, is that you're right. There is this like base level studio competence to Monster on the Campus. But also, if you said to me, hey, Ben, would you rather watch Monster on the Campus or Plan 9 from Outer Space? I would probably choose Plan 9 from Outer Space. So I just I ended up getting kind of stuck down here. That's fair. So your floor was... 134. 134. And I'm stuck at 189. The middle spot between our areas is 161. So that is Dracula from Istanbul and also The Magician at 162. Reconfiguring my brain to this area, I'm willing to say that this probably should go... I don't know. What do you think? I think it should go higher than Dracula in Istanbul. That movie does have something to say. Right. It had some interesting subtext. Yeah. Looking above, there's things like uh, Supernatural, Mm -hmm. which was a fairly good movie. The Mummy is here at number 155. I think... I think we are definitely like looking below these movies. Yeah, I think Genuina is better than this, just on the pure fact of having an interesting production design. <laughs> like the bat has better cinematography. Yeah, I think I'm going to call our attention to number 165, Before I Hang. That is one of the Boris Karloff Columbia pictures, and it was very repetitive. Uh, it was, um, he's a good scientist, but he's in jail and he's trying to like right. keep people or yeah, he, he's like experimenting on blood and then like he, um, finds a way to kill people before he hangs or something. Yeah. Those Columbia Karloff movies really, really blur together. Um, so I am going to suggest <laughs> this is hard. This okay. is hard. Um, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna counter offer you. Go for it. Looking just a little bit down, we have stuff like Pikavaya Dama, the Russian version of Queen of Spades. We have a the John Barrymore, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Uh, we have Daughter of Doctor Jekyll. Um, we have The Unknown with Lon Chaney Senior. Um, I think we put this below The Unknown, but above the Aztec Mummy. Why? Um, basically, because I think when we hit the Aztec mummy and then like the she creature beneath that and giant from the unknown and man beast, this is the area of the list where we start to lose that base level of competence, I think. And we start getting into like a lot more amateur feeling productions. And I think that like the thing that's wrong, that's bad about Monster on the Campus, ignoring the bad mask because that really drags the whole thing down. But ignoring that, the thing that's bad about this movie is that it's not better. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, if you had never seen any other movies like this, it's fine. It's just that there's so many other movies like this, and it's not better than any of them, right? Yeah, no, I think this is a good spot. Okay, cool. Let's put it here then at the new number 178. Monster on the Campus from 1958, directed by Jack Arnold. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line 
through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed, leave us a rating or a review to help the algorithm promote us to other people, or do the legwork yourself and promote us through social media or in person. Word of mouth is how we grow our audience the best. If you'd like to support the show in a fiduciary manner, you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content, and patrons of all stripes get to vote in our monthly polls to determine our horror-adjacent bonus episode for that month. So if you want to be part of those exciting endeavors head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so what are we watching next week ben next week sarah we are following up actually on the haunted strangler um, with another british horror film by those same producers starring boris karloff it is corridors of blood is that the one with jack nicholson no you're thinking of the terror okay we'll get there okay Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.